0: Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I am like freaking out right now because I have Lundy Bancroft on today's episode. And just like so many of you listeners, his book, Why Does He Do That? and his other book, Daily Wisdom for Why Does He Do That? saved my life. Before we get to Lundy Just a reminder that Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group is available to you. We have multiple sessions a day in every single time zone, and you can likely get into a session today. So please check out our website, btr.org, for more information. We'd love to see you in a session today if you're experiencing the types of emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion that we talk about here on Betrayal Trauma Recovery. Okay, now to Lundy Bancroft! Lundy has over 25 years experience in the fields of abuse, trauma, and recovery. He has published five books, including the bestseller, Why Does He Do That? Lundy has worked with over 1,000 abusive men in his counseling groups. He has also served extensively as a custody evaluator, child abuse investigator, and expert witness, and has presented to 350 audiences across the U.S. and abroad. His play, Forbidden to Protect, co-authored by Patrice Lenowitz, explores battered women's experiences with the child custody system. So welcome, Lundy. Thank you. Most of my audience is familiar with your book, Why Does He Do That?, because I have been encouraging women to read this for the last four years and your involvement in working with abusers. I don't think they know as much about your advocacy for children, And that's what I want to talk about today. But before we get to that, I do have a few questions about why does he do that that I think so many victims want to know. So my first question is, why does he do that enabled me and so many other victims to understand that our quote unquote marriage issues or our husband's pornography addiction or whatever we labeled it was really just abuse? Why do you think it takes years of trial and error and then perhaps reading a big fat book like yours to understand that we are victims of abuse?
1: Well, I think primarily it's because abusers put so much of their energy into keeping the woman off the track. I mean, they're just very deceptive individuals. And that's a lot of their mission is to get the woman as confused as possible about what's going on. And he works very hard to make her feel that she's the cause of the problem. He works very hard to make her feel that she's imagining the problem, that the problem doesn't even exist, that kind of all men do what he does. And if she doesn't like it, that's just something wrong with her. And they also send a lot of messages to the woman to make her feel like if she would just do better at X, Y, or Z that he says she's bad about, that that would solve the problem. So to me, it really largely comes down to him. He sets a whole scene. It makes it so hard to make sense out of what's happening unless you get a voice in from the outside.
0: Speaking of that, when you try to get a voice in from the outside, so you go for help to a therapist or maybe clergy or maybe 10 therapists, and they also don't identify the abuse. They say things like, well, you need to stop asking questions or, you need to be more loving or, you know, whatever else it is. How would you explain that phenomena?
1: Well, this answer is actually quite surprising to people, but therapists generally receive zero training on any form of abuse, believe it or not. And this is still true in our times. Nowadays, maybe sometimes they've gotten a little training on child abuse or elder abuse. You can get through a course and become a licensed social worker or become a licensed clinical psychologist, you're like a totally qualified, so to speak, therapist. You don't know anything about abusive relationships. You don't know anything about what the domestic abuse perpetrator is like. Oddly enough, you don't even necessarily have any significant training in trauma. And we would think, oh, well, trauma, that's the first thing you would think a therapist in training would learn about. Well, trauma is actually considered a kind of specialization. It's not a standard part of what you learn. It's something you sign up for extra if that's a particular interest of yours. So there's no greater likelihood that your therapist will understand about abuse than that your next door neighbor will understand about abuse. So we have a lot of work to do in the years ahead of trying to raise the general awareness and especially the awareness among service providers about what abusers are all about.
0: Yeah. We see that every day here at Betrayal Trauma Recovery, our community has over 60,000 victims of abuse who all have attempted to get quote-unquote help for their husband's pornography addiction, usually, and who were further abused by the helping professionals that they went to, either pornography addiction recovery specialists and sometimes sexual addiction therapists. And what happens is they end up even more abused through that process. And so then they find us and we have women who've just been like put through the ringer, not just by their abuser, but also by their clergy and by the therapists. And you probably see that all the time from your experience too. From our perspective as victims, it feels like society is more concerned about not hurting, and I put hurting in quotes as well, the perpetrators, than they are about protecting the victims, including women and children. How do you feel about that? Do you think that's true? Or do you think they just simply
1: don't understand it? I think it is partly true. It's remarkable, for example, how often when a woman tells the truth to a friend, a relative, a professional about what's been done to her, she is immediately put on the defensive. And the person starts to respond to her as if somehow she's failing to recognize her partner's humanity. And people will start to say things to her like, well, you know, he's a human being too. Or, you know, he has feelings too. And all she did was describe what he was doing to her. Mm -hmm. And it's tragic to me that instead of looking at the key subject, which is how he is erasing and denying her humanity, Instead, she's instantly put on the defensive as if she somehow were erasing or denying his humanity when she didn't do anything of the kind. All she did was report what had been done to her. I find it very frustrating. And as you describe, I find so much when women are telling me their stories that they have been nearly as badly wounded or sometimes as badly wounded by the responses they got from people around them as they were by what the abusive person did.
0: Yes. Yeah, we find that a lot here. And one last question about this general abuse topic before we get to your advocacy for children. When it comes to the pornography use and sex addiction issues, and I just call it abuse, And people get really mad. They say, I'm anti man. They say, I'm pro divorce. They say that I hate men and I want to ruin marriages or things like that when I say, no, this is just an abuse issue. Can you give us your thoughts on the current state of like the pornography addiction, porn addiction kind of industry?
1: Well, pornography, first of all, as an industry is vast. The pornography industry is a huge industry in this country, you know, 10 billion and more dollars per year. And so unfortunately, that also means that there are an awful lot of people who want to speak in defense of it because it's making a lot of people a lot of money. You know, another key issue about pornography is that when you try to talk about how destructive pornography is, people often take a stand that you're sort of anti-sex or anti-bodies or anti-nudity. And of course, some people who are against pornography are those things. But most of us who are against pornography, we're not against pornography because we're against sex. We're against pornography because it's a whole system that teaches a very twisted, violent, exploitative sexuality, and it's particularly anti-female in its nature in this country. So we have to be clear about that. Secondly, yes, I do believe that there are men who get addicted to pornography. I'm not 100% convinced that there are very many men who are addicted to sex. I think most of what's called sex addiction is actually the devaluation of women as human beings and men who have sex with zillions of different women i don't think it's exactly because they're addicted to sex i think it's because they can't take females seriously as people and so they're having sex with zillions of women because that's a substitute for ever connecting with anyone in a meaningful way maybe some true sex addiction exists mostly like i say i've seen it as an excuse addiction to pornography definitely exists but What surrounds it is not an addiction. In other words, when a guy's addicted to pornography, but he's pressuring women to do things from the pornography, well, the pressuring her to do things that he saw in pornography has nothing to do with his addiction to pornography. That has to do with his abusiveness. Or when he's keeping secrets from her about other women that he's seeing, well, that's not because of his addiction to pornography. That's because he's cheating on her. So we have to insist that the notion of an addiction doesn't then get used as an excuse for treating your partner terribly.
0: Right. Or as an excuse for just abuse. I mean, really just comes down to abuse. Also, the pornography industry in and of itself is abusive and coercive, right, and exploitative to women, which you mentioned. So there's abuse on so many levels. Okay. You have written a book called When Dad Hurts Mom, Helping Your Children Heal the Wounds of Witnessing Abuse. Can you tell us more about your book? What can our audience gain from reading it?
1: You know, most women who are being severely mistreated by their partners also have children. Something like almost two-thirds, they say, of women who are being abused by their partners also have children. And that means that the woman is worried about how the man's behavior is affecting her kids. But it's also almost too hard to think about because she's going through so much day-to-day managing how the man is treating her that it can be overwhelming to think about the fact that the kids are also getting hurt in this process and it can be as a kind of survival mechanism it can be tempting for her to just tune it out and think oh the kids don't even realize what he's doing or they're going to be okay or it all happens after they've gone to sleep or that kind of thing but over time she can see that they're having a hard time and on some level they're aware uh, usually, much more aware than she realizes. It starts to dawn on her. They know what's going on. The reason I wrote When Dad Hurts Mom is because I feel like if women were equipped with ideas about how to help the kids, then they'd be much more likely to accept the fact that the kids are getting hurt by what the guy is doing. If you just feel powerless about what the guy is doing, then who wants to then think about, oh, my kids are getting hurt too? Whereas if you feel like, I can do some things. To help my kids it's in my power to make a difference to them then it's easier to face the fact that they're part of the deal that how dad or stepdad or mom's boyfriend whoever he is how he treats mom is going to have some big impacts on her kids so i wrote when dad hurts mom first to explain here's some of the ways that what he's doing are affecting your kids even if you think it's not uh, here's some of the ways that you can tell it's affecting your kids that you're probably already noticing and it's not your fault. And here's some ways that you can make a real difference to your kids in managing what's happening. But the first thing you have to do if you, to really make a difference to your kids is you have to accept the fact that how your partner treats you matters to your kids. It's going to affect them.
0: So that is something that the current legal system doesn't see. They think that abuse is just to one specific person. Even with protective orders, the woman could get a protective order, but it doesn't cover the children, right? Or with custody situations, they can say, well, he was abusive to her, but the kids can still go with him because he's not abusive to the kids only because he's never hit them or punched them in the face. They're not seeing the emotional abuse or the psychological abuse as an abuse issue. Can you speak to that for a bit?
1: First, it's ridiculous that courts take the stand that how a man treats the children's mother is a separable question from how he treats the kids. If you care about your kids, you don't abuse their mother. If you care about your kids, you can tell that abusing their mother is horrible for them. So anytime like a client in one of my abuser programs said, well, yeah, I may have done some bad things to their mom, but I'm a really good dad. I always said to him, no, you're not a good dad while you're doing terrible things to their mom, because doing terrible things to their mom is in itself terrible parenting. The only way that you can do terrible things to their mom is by completely tuning out and not caring about what it does to your kids. Because if you're remotely paying attention to what it does to your kid, you would be seeing how vastly they're being affected by how you're treating their mom. So I'm very frustrated when child Protective Services, when restraining order hearings, when custody courts talk about those issues as if somehow they're separate issues. There's also the issue of the direct mistreatment of the kids. but even if he never directly mistreats the kids, he's already doing enough harm to them. He's already doing terrible parenting. Statistically, he's also pretty likely doing direct harm to the kids. He's something like seven times as likely, and there's a lot of different studies on this, he's about seven times as likely as a non-abusive man to be abusing the kids directly. In fact, non-abusive men don't do a lot of abusing of children, according to the research. And... So this level of denial of really quite deliberate and willful denial in the custody courts and in other legal proceedings is putting children at tremendous risk. I've so often wished that I could file a child abuse report on a judge because they're so often guilty of such severe neglect and kids of putting kids at tremendous, tremendous risk.
0: Yeah, we see that a lot. And it's a very difficult situation. Speaking of women who are trying to make decisions out of the best interest of their children, many women who are being abused think, Well, I need to stay with the abuser because that would be best for my children for whatever reason. They have really good reasons and really bad reasons, but many victims go through this thought process of, Well, you know, I'm going to do what's best for the kids. What indications can a mother look for to know? that she really does need to get out of the relationship, and that is what would be best for her children.
1: There's a lot to be said, actually, about this decision of whether to leave the abuser or not, because it's a really, really tricky decision if he's the kid's father. If he's not the kid's father, if he's just like a live-in boyfriend or a stepdad, then her decisions are not quite as complicated. But if he is the father, he's got legal rights, and that means that she's not going to be able to just keep him out of the children's lives. Beginning at the beginning of what you're asking. So what kinds of things you want to tune into with your kids? Well, you want to tune into whether they're starting to have trouble sleeping, whether they're starting to have trouble eating. You want to tune into whether they're starting to fight with each other a lot more than they used to. You want to tune into whether they're starting to fight with you a lot more than they used to. One of the top symptoms of kids who are being affected by the abusive behavior of a man in the home is the way that they start to treat their mother. Because they start to be disrespectful to her, rude to her, threatening to her, sometimes physically violent with her. They learn the abuser's behaviors. By the way, even kids who can't stand the abuser, who hate his guts, still also start to act out some of his behaviors on the mom. See how your kids are doing at school. See how their friendships are going. If you look carefully, there's a good chance that you're going to find that there's some signs that they're going downhill in one of these areas. The other thing to do is to really open up the conversation. Generally, after an incident when the dad or stepdad, when the man in the house has been really scary or was outright violent or was calling the most disgusting names or had pornography in the house or different things like this, which the kids know when this stuff is going on, everybody acted like nothing had happened. The key step here is to open up the subject and start saying to kids, so what was that like? That must have been upsetting to you when that thing happened the other day. What was that like for you? How are you feeling? Are you doing okay? Uh, did you have any questions about what happened? Uh, are you upset? And to give kids some space and some room, I, I talk in a lot of detail And When Dad Hurts Mom about how to actually help kids talk about and process their feelings from these abusive incidents. It doesn't have to be physical violence. Kids are very effective by any experience of watching their mom torn down. It's really painful and upsetting to them. The kids adore their mothers and they do not like to see someone being really mean to mom. It hurts them. It hurts their hearts a lot to watch that. So they need space to talk about it. And sometimes they need space to cry about it and have tantrums. I explain a lot yeah. in the book about ways that their emotions may be coming out. So the sooner that you can remove the secrecy, the silence from the subject of dad or stepdad's abusiveness. Now, I don't mean by talking badly about him, but I mean by making it okay to talk about his behavior, to make it okay to talk about what he did, and to make it okay for the kids to talk about how they were affected by it, and answer any questions they may have about how you were affected by it, to make it okay to go into this stuff. I remember the first project that I ever knew of, as far as I know, it was the first one in the US, it was specifically for kids who'd been exposed to abuse towards their mom, what they call child witnesses. First program that I knew of in the country for child witnesses was called Project We Can Talk About It. And I just thought that was exactly the right name because kids get the message, this is something we can't talk about. And so then all their wounds, all their symptoms, all their experiences just go internal, go underground and come out later and sideways. and Often it doesn't even look like it's tied to the abuse they've witnessed. So that school teachers and and juvenile courts and police often don't realize well, what's going on with this kid is this kid is in a lot of pain from how a man is treating their mom. There's this
0: divorce lingo or even non-divorce lingo, even marriage lingo. Like don't speak ill of the kid's father. And so, how can you help women understand the difference between being able to speak about the abuse and not talking bad about him? Because basically, anytime you talk about the behavior, the abuser doesn't like it and he's going to accuse the victims of talking badly about him. So how would you separate those two things so that a woman can have confidence knowing that she's not going against like this widely regarded advice to not speak ill of the kid's father while also being able to discuss the abuse?
1: Well, I can't give a perfect answer to this question because the custody court system is so broken that the proper distinction is not being made. I'll say what the proper distinction is, if the court should be making, if it were operating properly, which is to badmouth someone is to say someone's a jerk, someone's selfish, someone cares only about himself. You know, that's badmouthing someone, calling names, being vulgar, and so forth. Describing what somebody did, what their actions were, and what their effects were, is not degrading that parent. That's not demeaning that parent. The kind of thing that comes up often in custody proceedings is... Kids will come home from a visit with dad and they'll say, we learned from dad that that time that he got arrested three years ago was because you lied to the police and said that he had hit you when actually he hadn't. And then mom says to the kids, oh, I'm sorry that that came up, but actually dad did hit me three years ago. And she proceeds to tell the kids what actually happened in that incident. Then she gets labeled someone who's speaking badly about the dad When all she did was tell the truth about his actions. And in fact, she was correcting misinformation that he was giving them. That's wrong on the court's part. That's not good for kids. Kids who've been exposed to abuse need confirmation of their experience, they need validation, they need accurate information, and they need it to be okay to talk about the abuse. And so the family court is not making any distinction between bad-mouthing someone in the sense of talking them down which is wrong and describing accurately what the person did which is right and which in fact is essential to kids well-being when they have witnessed abuse so that's a very unethical biased unreasonable way that the custody courts are proceeding and unfortunately a lot of divorce professionals many many divorce professionals suggest somehow that you should just leave kids out of the middle i'll give an example That's exactly follows from the one I just gave. Dad will tell kids something that's completely untrue about the history of his abusiveness or the history of her reports of his abusiveness. What the divorce professional will say to mom is don't correct what he said. Say to the kids, uh, this is just business between the adults. This isn't issues for the kids to think about. You just have to let the adults handle the adult stuff and you just be a kid and handle the kids stuff. Well, that's very nice theoretically, as long as you're completely ignorant about what abusers are like. But if you know anything about what abusers are like, he's not going to stop involving them in these kinds of discussions. And he's going to be lying to them because abusers lie and lie and lie. So that means, in effect, what this divorce professional is telling mom is you should do nothing to protect your children from a lifetime of lies from a very destructive individual. You should just let them continue to be exposed endlessly to this horrible misinformation that's not only going to contaminate your relationship with these kids and not only likely to contaminate their relationship with each other, but is in fact going to lay the groundwork for your boys to grow up to become abusers themselves and for your girls to grow up to become victims. That's what the divorce professional is saying. That They don't think that's what they're saying. But that's what the divorce professional is saying when they're saying don't counter his misinformation. They're dead wrong about that. So one of my central messages in all the public education that I do and in my writing is you cannot take these standard divorce theories and divorce philosophies and apply them to a domestic abuser. They not only won't work, they will actively do harm.
0: We see that day in and day out from the examples that we hear and the stories that we hear at Betrayal Trauma Recovery from all the women who share their stories. We're going to pause here and continue our conversation with Lundy Bancroft, author of Why Does He Do That?, the book that all of us adore. You can find his book on our website, btr.org backslash books. If you click on Why Does He Do That, it'll just take you right to Amazon or you can just buy it on Amazon. Either way, if you have not read it, I encourage you to read it. It will open your eyes to really understanding abuse. And I know that I was afraid to read it because I thought, no, it's not abuse. I don't wanna go there. But if you read it and it's not abuse, you will know. It lays it out very, very clearly. And I think everyone in the world needs to know more about abuse. This book is not a threat. The purpose of the book is to really help educate you about what abuse is so that you can keep yourself safe and so that you can help other people be safe. That's the point. So stay tuned. We'll continue this conversation next week. If this podcast is helpful to you, please support us monthly. Go to btr.org, scroll down to the bottom, and click on support the podcast. Similarly, every single one of your ratings on iTunes or other podcasting apps helps isolated women find us. And this podcast is absolutely free to everyone. And so your help getting the word out about it through reviews or tagging us or, you know, sharing on Facebook or any way of letting people know about this podcast is so helpful. Reviews is one of them because it bumps up the algorithm and people are able to find it when they're looking for things on podcasts. Similarly, my book Trauma Mama Husband Drama the more reviews we get there on Amazon, the more people can find us because they they find the book. They might not necessarily buy the book but they can find the podcast from that. I know that every victim who's been through this doesn't want other victims to go through the pain and chaos that she went through so your help getting the word out is you know meaningful to people Women are really grateful when they find us. They're genuinely like, I get it, I get it. It can save their life emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, sometimes physically. So thank you to those of you who help us get
1: the word out. And until next week, stay safe out there.